Hi everyone, welcome to Identity Crisis, a show about news and ideas from the Shalom Hartman Institute. I'm Yehuda Kurtzer, President of Shalom Hartman Institute North America, and we're recording on Friday, May 28, 2021. Over the course of this year of Identity Crisis episodes, we've been reasonably heterodox about the topics that we talk about in this show. Issues ranging from American racial justice and how that implicates the Jewish community, questions of Jewish culture, periodically shows on Israel, sometimes shows about American Jewish communal inside baseball. You'll forgive me, though, that for the last couple of weeks, it's hard to think about anything else than the recent crisis semi-war in Israel-Palestine that materialized and blessedly came to a ceasefire last Friday. Last week, I spoke with Rabbi Ethan Tucker about questions of American Jewish Zionism at a crossroads, and this week I'm staying on topic of the continued question of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, the continued question of occupation, voice of American Jews as relates to these crises, the ways in which this crisis implicates all of us. It's been hard for me to think about anything else for the past few weeks, and in as much as I do genuinely believe that we are at something of a turning point, I'm not totally sure why, maybe we can unpack that a little bit today. We are a little bit of a turning point about the way in which the American Jewish community engages with and maybe is implicated by the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, we're going to stay on topic again for this week. And to do so, I'm thrilled to be in conversation with two colleagues who I really respect and whose work is really critical. Yona Shemtov is the executive director of Encounter, based in New York. We'll hear a little bit more about what Encounter is and does. Leah Solomon is the chief education officer of Encounter, based in Jerusalem. Encounter, I'll crudely say, and then you both can correct me, has built its business on bringing American Jewish leaders to witness the occupation firsthand and to be in conversation with, or perhaps more accurately, to listen to the voices of Palestinians, and then to ask how the experience of seeing the occupation and listening to the voices of Palestinians must necessarily at least inform and possibly change American Jewish voices in relationship to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and the occupation. Did I get it right, Yona? Yep. Okay, sounds good. So both of you are in this business in a deep way. I have also been just reading and watching and listening to both of your voices, especially on social media throughout this conflict. I want to start less descriptively. I kind of want to start in a pretty deep place. So much of what you talk about, both of you, is around seeing. And I want to talk about the question of seeing and what seeing entails and how it obligates. And to start, Leah, I want to read a quote of something that you wrote on Facebook. I think it was this past week. I'll just read the brief quote. I will say when I look into the faces of my Palestinian friends and colleagues, there are many things that make me feel sad and angry about the kind of life our state has carved out for them. But this knowledge that I am equal and they are not, and that we are not crying out every day at the injustice and doing everything we can to reach a just solution, makes me feel such deep shame and so worried for who we are and are becoming. The one thing that gives me any sense of hope is to believe that we're only able to do this because we allow ourselves not to see. We must learn to see again. Leah, your writing has been really valuable to so many on this side of the water as we watch and process this conflict. Can you start by talking a little about what seeing means, what it entails, what you mean when you talk about seeing in the deepest sense? Yeah. Look, I think that a huge part of our problem as a Jewish people is that we have allowed ourselves to avoid dealing with this issue, with the issue of the Palestinians, right? I mean, just to take an example a live example from this week, my mother-in-law, my brother-in-law, a bunch of other family members live in Efrat, which is 20, 30 minutes south of Jerusalem. And we went there this week for a bris of a new nephew. And in order to get there, we have to drive right past Bethlehem. And the truth is that 40 years ago, somebody wanting to get from Jerusalem to Efrat would have had to drive straight through Bethlehem. It was the only way to get there. What do we have now? We now have bypass roads very efficient, lovely. You don't even notice that there are Palestinians. We have a wall. You can call it a security wall. You can call it a separation wall. People have all sorts of names for it based on where they're coming from. But fundamentally, what does that mean? It means we simply don't see. We don't have to see. We're protected from seeing. And that's true. I'm giving you one example just from this week. But that's true across the country. We've created a reality where Palestinians aren't in our face anymore. The conflict, the occupation, whatever you want to call it, isn't in our face anymore. And I think this is just the baseline starting point. It's not the end point. But if we don't realize there is a problem, if we don't acknowledge there is a problem, we are exempt from having to deal with that problem. So I think seeing is really just the starting point for then dealing with everything, which we can get into further. 
It's a great example. I lived in Gush Etzion for two years when I was in yeshiva. And at the time when I lived there, it's exactly as you described it. You had to drive through Bethlehem, past Beit Jala, directly past the entrance to the Dehesha refugee camp. It's not as though the seeing actually really informed Israeli policy. In fact, much of the seeing that took place by Israelis, especially who were living out in the West Bank, drove the perceived need for a security state and for the convenience that would be created by a bypass road. But I think that you're obligating us to look a little differently. So you started us in terms of Israelis in particular. I want to come back to that. Of How much of what has to change is for Israelis to see this differently? But Yona, let me move over to you because based here in New York, I know you're an Israeli citizen, but you run what is effectively an American Jewish organization or North American Jewish organization. And so much of the work that you've been doing is effectively... I don't want to say forcing people to see, but giving people an opportunity to see something that their birthright trip might not take them to, the bar mitzvah trip might not force them to encounter. So tell us a little bit about what motivates that work for you and what's the objective in terms of why seeing should inform or change the way someone relates to this conflict. Usually on the first day of our programs, I start with something that I'd like to share here because it informs so much of why I do the work we do. Charles Duhigg has this great book, Thinking Faster, Better, Smarter, that I was once reading on the way to Israel. And unfortunately, the chapter in which I'm referring to, he describes a passenger plane of 300 people that eventually goes down in the ocean. But what he's talking about is what happens in the cockpit. There's a change in pressure. The technical details don't matter. But the assistant pilot basically got locked in a particular mode of thinking in the moment of duress. And he could not take in any other input in that moment. And that's what actually caused the plane to go down. They now train pilots differently, all based on this. And he talks about something called inattentional blindness, which is not a physical limitation, but it's actually a psychological constraint that in moments of stress, of extreme stress, we narrow in and focus only on the stimulus that's right in front of us. So he talks about cognitive tunneling and we become overly focused on the thing that's right in front of us, but to the detriment actually of being able to see other pieces of essential data that might inform how we're moving forward. And to me, that's kind of how I think about encounters work, that as the Jewish people in North America, but yes, with Israelis, and we can talk about that as well, we have all of us, particular lenses in the way in which we see. And I've had my own personal experiences where I've been forced to confront other data. And then the work is, do you give up your lens and then only see it through that lens? Or is there a process of integration? And really what we're trying to do is to invite people to have access to data that might not otherwise be available to them or is mediated for them through other sources. And to ask them to consider how might this extra data be important for us as we think about the existential challenges that face the Jewish people. What does success look like? That's a really loaded question, right? Because I'm also an educator. So if you show immediate success as an educator, you're actually not an educator, you're a brainwasher. I get it. But when you open up the aperture, that's what you're talking about, opening up the aperture. Now someone sees the full story, the full picture. You're not in the business of direct line activism. And there are versions of an open aperture that are really not good. Somebody becomes so overwhelmed by something that they just check out from it. Or they stop believing the things that they might have believed beforehand and they become converts to a cause in a way that actually narrows their field of vision. So talk me through, like, what do you, I know it's a crude question, but what's supposed to happen? First of all, you just named, these are major challenges. Like we can't sidestep. Those are challenges in our work. And we have had experiences of both of what you've described, right? Where people come back and they're overwhelmed or where people come back and they narrow in one direction or the other. My high dream is integration, really is like, how do you move through this process? One rabbi, actually prominent rabbi that was on this trip last week, had once likened his experience of coming with Encounter as when he first arrived at seminary for rabbinical school and it dismantled his belief in God. And suddenly he had to contend with all the pieces of documentary hypothesis and all those different pieces. And it smashed some idols for him. And then he spent the next five years putting it back together. I think part of our challenge is 
We're a small, nimble organization. We're not trying to do the whole picture. I mean, that's the thing. We're not also visiting Efrat. I mean, I think that's something that we're playing with right now, but we're trying to bring specific people who we believe have a specific kind of resilience and foundation to take in this information. Success for me would be that then it jumps up the ladder of values of what they're thinking about and that they're thinking about how they teach, how they talk, how they write, how they give their money on this issue changes, right? In a way that sort of is more reflective of the real urgent challenges on the ground. Yeah, I mean, obviously I connect everything Yona said. I think for me, first of all, there is something about shifting the paradigm that I think is really, really important in terms of what I want people to walk away with. Because you're right, there are people, as Yona said, who walk away and sort of either like disengage entirely from Israel or kind of like buckle down and feel even more threatened than they did before. But fundamentally, I think part of the first line of what we're trying to do is to ensure that people will feel a sense of responsibility around the inextricable nature of Israelis and Palestinians. And I know this is like not really accepted in, say, liberal Zionist circles, right? The idea that they're there, we're here, we're trying to work toward a two-state solution. Inextricability kind of threatens that model. But fundamentally, when I look at the situation, and I would love for there to be a two-state solution if that could really work, right? But fundamentally, there is an inextricability around our existence in this land. And when I say our, I'm actually including American Jews, the investment of American Jews in Israel, in the future of the Jewish people in Israel, I think is extremely deep. And that's why it's so important to us to bring American Jews. And I think what I want is for people to reach a place where they're able to say part of what it means to be loyal to Israel, to care about Israel, to care about the future of the Jewish people in this land is to recognize that we have a unique relationship with Palestinians. They're part of our story. They are not going anywhere unless we commit genocide, which God willing is not the direction we're headed. They're not going anywhere. Our lives are fundamentally intertwined in a way that Even if a two-state solution is on the horizon, it is probably, let's just be realistic, at least decades away. And we have a unique responsibility and we can embrace that responsibility toward what it means to see Palestinians, to be responsible toward Palestinians, to speak about what's happening in the West Bank, in East Jerusalem, in Gaza, to be able to critique the Israeli government, which I think is something that American Jews, Americans in general over the past four years or so have learned that being patriotic, being loyal doesn't necessarily mean that you have to agree with what your government does at all times. In fact, sometimes the greatest form of loyalty is being able to critique not just the government, but the policies and the direction that the country is going. Like That's what I want people to be able to hold, is this idea that caring about Israel actually means caring about Palestinians, learning the story of the Jewish people in the land of Israel means learning the story of Palestinians in this same land, which they have another name for. But we're all here. We're all mixed together. We cannot erase them from our story and be true to ourselves and act with integrity. The inextricability thing, and I'm very taken with that as well. And, you know, my own passion for the two-state solution as the obvious way to solve this conflict, as the obvious way since the 30s to solve this conflict has been attenuated in recent years by the question of what might be an obvious solution, even for the people who live there, and especially for people who are far away, may not be the choice that the people who live within this land want. And how do you actually listen for those questions of inextricability? But I'll go back and say it has an alienating quality, because the more that Israelis and Palestinians resemble one another, which they do, ethnically, they speak much more adjacent languages. They share the same culture. Hebrew is inflected by a huge amount of Arabic now, colloquially spoken Hebrew and vice versa. Their political destinies are tied into each other. It raises this really interesting question for many American Jews of like, okay, you guys want each other. You're building one society together in which you are both one another's significant others and your most powerful antagonists. I don't know. Should I de-emphasize the importance of the story? I am alien to it. American Jews don't speak either of those languages. And I mean literally the languages and also the culture. I wonder a little bit whether the further we go down the road towards the inextricability of Israelis and Palestinians in the story, whether American Jews in this, you said, Leah, like American Jews are part of that too, whether we're basically kind of an afterthought 
to this story? And is that good news or bad news? I mean, one of the things that I'm quoting Yona right now, but fundamentally, I believe this. Fundamentally, I think this is a Jewish peoplehood conversation. This is a Jewish peoplehood issue, right? I mean, I remember, I did not grow up here, as you can probably hear. I moved here in my early 20s, shortly after college. But I remember the first time I walked down Emek Rafaim Street. And I remember learning Tanakh and hearing about Emek Rafaim. And this sounds trite, right? But this is like, I came here when I was 15 on Ramah seminar. And I looked back at my journal a couple months ago, and I I have to get back here maybe to live. Like, that's not everybody's direction, but there is a fundamental connection that Jews have to this land. And there is a fundamental connection that Jews have to each other. I don't think I'm saying anything earth shattering. And I realize that there are people who are disengaging from that. And that makes me really sad. But I will also say on a very personal level, I feel abandoned when American Jews disengage, right? Like, those are my people. I want them. The people here are also my people. And by the way, I think of Palestinians also as my people. That's part of the inextricability, right? But it's like when your sister turns her back on you and doesn't want to deal with you when you're having some problems. And it's just like, you know what? Deal with your own stuff, not my problem. Like, that's not what I want as an Israeli. That's not what I want as somebody who's very connected to the American Jewish community. I hope that that's what American Jews want as well. And I think for many people who are disengaging, it's not out of a lack of sense of connection, although maybe that's starting to happen in younger generations. And that's another conversation which really worries me. But for people in our generation, people who are older than us, certainly, when I see the disengagement, I think a lot of it is coming out of just a sense of deep disappointment, not out of a lack of connection. Yona, what about you? You're building your life here, leaving aside your Israeliness, right? But as you're building a life here, and you and I are in the same boat, we are weird in the sense that for us, Israel and Israelis and the Palestinians are inseparable from our Jewish identities. And we want other people to be in the muckety muck of this story, even though it's really muckety. Like I was speaking to rabbinical students this week and there was a little bit of like, okay, but I could just leave that to the side, like put my rabbinate somewhere else. And that's not antipathy towards Israel. Oftentimes it's just, it's so inconvenient. So how do you retain What's the argument that you make to help people retain a desire to be part of this thing that won't solve itself and that makes people feel bad about themselves? People feel embarrassed about the Jewish people sometimes or scared. What's the argument of why we need this as part of a thick Jewish identity? Well, because it's not going away. And in the course of history, it really is not to be simplistic about it, but it really is a miracle that we're alive at a time where there's a sovereign Jewish state. I mean, I say this really, my mother was a hidden child survivor of the war. My dad arrived in Israel on Erev Yom Atzmut in 51 from Baghdad. I feel it deep in my bones, sort of the magnitude of We're alive at a moment where there's a sovereign Jewish state and it's a mess. And anyone who pays attention to Jewish history knows that sovereignty is messy and it hasn't gone well for us in the past. I think it's in my DNA, so I can't escape it. But when I have conversations with rabbis who want to opt out, like it's just too hard, the less generous side of me is, okay, well, good luck with that because guess what? Intersectionality is going to make sure that you can't walk away from it. If you want to be part of a conversation about racial justice in the United States, there's a whole movement of people that are looking to mainstream the conversation about Palestinians directly into the face of Jews, actually, on this issue. There's a movement to polarize on this, to choose. So that's like one piece of it. That's the negative crisis-oriented piece of it. I'm not ambivalent about what I'm going to say, but... I'm working it out as I speak, so bear with me. One of the things that I talk about a lot, we talk about internally, is I worry when I look at my kids who are five and seven, what is going to be the state of Jewish education on this? And I do see that there's like a lapsed connection in younger Jews. They don't have necessarily what the three of us have. There is in certain parts of the Jewish community, certainly within the modern Orthodox community and certain other pockets. But This gets into a conversation about Jewish education. Like this to me is where we have, I don't want to overstate it, but I think the attachment, let's make sure there's an attachment to Israel has failed us. Like it's 25 years of a 
way of saying, let's make sure they're attached, but we're not talking about being anchored. We're not talking about being literate. We don't have standards and benchmarks really on this. Like that's something we've been talking about internally of like, what would it look like for us to put out standards and benchmarks to really engage and educate on this specific issue? Not all of Israel education. There are other organizations doing that, but they're constrained to really delve into the issue of the conflict. They can't use the word, the occupation. And I think that's harming us on the American Jewish side. I'll say like, I think it's kind of crazy. There's a product out there for non-Jewish students, non-Jewish influencers, funded by Jews to go to Israel and to meet both peoples in a very complex way. Why don't we have that actually for Jewish students? They're the ones that are looking at us and saying, wait, you're going to keep feeding me something that actually is flattened when the world is reflecting back. It's not this. So we've been talking about it. It's like, do we step into that space? We're small. We don't want to have mission creep. But on the flip side, it's like we're seeding this to a vacuum of creative vision on what a courageous Jewish education on this could look like. And I think that would help people feel more connected. What if you came to Israel and yes, you met Palestinians and you weren't fragile about it. You didn't worry it was going to shatter your entire Jewish identity because you were also meeting Israelis. And you might meet someone who works for the Association of Civil Rights in Israel, right? You might meet Haggai Elad from B'Tselem. And you might also meet somebody who lives in Efrat. I think our young people, especially the digital natives, are looking at us and the rage that's coming out in some of the disaffection is actually because... They're not seeing leadership reflect back to them the real complexity. And why don't we invite them in? I think that's like an amazing journey to be invited in on. I'm very taken with your terminology around benchmarks. Where I've observed it is a little bit differently, which is more about behaviors of Jewish education, including, and the one that feels most visible to me, is that the same things that make Jewish educators really excited when they study certain topics. My students are arguing with each other. They're stumping me. They're asking questions I don't know the answer for. That's exciting when it comes to Bible or Talmud or something else. But when it comes to Israel studies, that's viewed as a failure. And that creates this weird element of teachers of their anxiety of getting it right. Because if they don't, something bad will happen in the other end. On the other hand, maybe one of the obstacles to what you're describing is that part of what's happened in the Jewish left with the rise of the Jewish left and as it has become more full-throated in its anti-Zionism, there's a kind of celebration of the story of the shattering. So what you want is resilience. You want to say you're strong enough and not fragile enough to be able to encounter something that will contest your narrative and you'll be able to be stronger on the other end. But then you have these like celebrated stories of, I had a Jewish education and then I went and saw the occupation firsthand and everything I learned was a lie. And by the way, I believe that overstates the problem in Jewish education because there's quite a few really sincere Jewish educators who like their students weren't paying attention when they were 16. I had a friend of mine who was a high school teacher who literally did a whole like four month unit on Israelis, Palestinians and occupation. And then like two years later, his student goes to Israel was like, they never told me about the occupation. He was like, here's your syllabus. But I guess I'm worried about the you say you're not fragile. But there's so many stories and celebrated stories of rupture. And so how do you generate the resilience in the Jewish community for people to feel that the opening of the aperture, the embrace of complexity won't actually break them? Resilience has to be part of the goal, right? I think we have to be oriented towards resilience on this issue. I think we are oriented in the worst case scenarios of the simplistic Hasbara stuff, right? Of like myths and facts. That's simplistic. I think that's simplistic. But I do think like, what if the goals in Israel education actually was to cultivate resilience around the fact that it's toxic, around the fact that it's full of complexity and actually invite people into the complexity and the fact that, you know, you could have PhDs on this and still argue about the facts, but the goal is to be engaged. To me, I feel like that's got to be part of where we're orienting the affective knowledge, skills, goals, literacy is to that. The other thing is, I just want to say, I had a conversation yesterday with John Levison, who's on our board and, you know, wonderful scholar of Jewish education. And he quoted, I think, Jonah Hassenfeld, because we were talking about this, you know, the you never told me, the if not now's campaign of you never told me. And as a Jewish history teacher, like, you know, right, 
at 16, you're maybe not paying attention to some of the things your Jewish history teacher is teaching you. But Jonah Hassenfeld, and I hope I'm not misquoting you, Jonas, has said, or John quoted him as saying, it doesn't actually matter if it's true. If that's their memory of it, like it's an indicator of something. Not to belittle it, but I feel like, okay, how do we tell them actually? How do we actually make it so that, you know, that book, The Power of Moments, like how do you make it so that actually when they leave whatever institution or space that's touching them on this issue, that they feel, yeah, they did tell me. They did tell me. They were honest. They showed me the complexity of this and they helped me feel like I can navigate it. I just want to add something here. I think in addition to having what we're hearing from younger generations push us to reevaluate, which I think is very important, I think there's also something about the defensiveness that I see from the Jewish establishment. Like what I would like to see, and I think this gets at your resiliency question, is like, okay, people are saying this. Kids are saying this, or people who were kids 10 years ago are saying, I never learned this. Why are we reacting with such defensiveness? Where is that coming from? And how can we shift that? Because fundamentally, if we have a desire for those young people to stay committed to Jewish peoplehood, to stay part of the Jewish community, to see Israel as something that's important to them, defensiveness is going to get us nowhere, right? There's like a backlash that people dig their heels in and try to prove, oh, actually, we were just fine. Why aren't we inviting them into conversation? Why aren't we saying, you know what, we really need to learn from this and reevaluate ourselves? That to me feels really important. And that's part of what I would like to see from the mainstream Jewish leaders that we're bringing on our programs. Hi, I'm Rabbi Lauren Birkin, Vice President of Rabbinic Initiatives at the Shalom Hartman Institute of North America. Even in the most challenging times for the Jewish people, Scholars at the Shalom Hartman Institute in Israel and North America push themselves to think about what could be and to focus on a Torah of possibility. That's why we're so excited to announce that registration for our virtual summer symposium is now open. Over two weeks from July 5th to July 15th, we'll be running public lectures, small seminars, and lots of opportunities for conversation exploring possible futures for Israel and the diaspora, Zionism, and Jewish identity. Featuring top scholars like Daniel Hartman, Yehuda Kurtzer, Michal Biton, Rachel Korazim, and Yossi Klein-Halevi, you can register today free of charge at summer.hartman.org.il. Let me riff off of something that Jonas said and move us into a little bit of a different direction, and it's this word complexity. I'm thinking a lot about the ethics of complexity. In fact, there was a real shift in the field about 15, 20 years ago when the pro-Israel, even the Hasbara world, realized that complexity was a tool at their disposal. Because the more I can convince people that it's complex, in some ways it invites people not to disentangle it. It's too hard for you. And it tells them to kind of attenuate the passions, right? We're not really at fault because it's complicated. So complexity starts as an ethical argument. Again, simplicity can also be a code for what becomes an unethical turn. So let me start by asking, what's complicated about this and what's really simple? It's a very good question. I haven't exactly thought about it in those terms. Look, the history is complicated. The emotions are very, very complicated. I think what is simple, and this is probably a controversial statement, but I think what is simple is we, and when I say we, I actually mean Israel, and I also mean the Jewish people, because as much as I don't like it that the Israeli government speaks on behalf of the Jewish people, I do think that Israel is a project, and probably the most important project of the Jewish people, right? I do feel like we all have some responsibility for it. We are the sovereign party. We are the party with the majority of the power. And that gives us tremendous responsibility. And I include American Jews in that responsibility. And to me, that is not really complicated. The other piece of that is that gives us a unique obligation to Palestinians because they live under our sovereign roof, like it or not, at least for now, in our current one state reality. That to me is not complicated. What we do with it is complicated. How to solve it, like, I think this is important to say, I am agnostic on what a solution should look like. That is a very complicated question. What I don't think is complicated is whatever that solution looks like, it needs to ensure security 
for everyone. Whatever polity or polities we end up with, everyone needs to be secure. And I think we underestimate the degree to which Palestinians are secure all the time. We see only the need for Jewish security, which is very important. We don't see the need for Palestinian security. Everyone needs to be able to live with dignity. Everyone needs to be able to live with equality. Those need to be foundational commitments. And then how to get there may be complicated. But I think sometimes we deny those commitments because it's easier to say it's complicated, as you describe very clearly. Let me push you on it for a second, then I'll ask you on the same question, which is, so if your starting point is one of the things that's simple is essentially Israeli slash Jewish agency in the sense of power, the ability to do something. This is a terrible question, but what happens to the aspects of Palestinian agency that are not in service of the moral vision that you're trying to put forward? It's basically the giant loaded thing that's called Hamas, which gets in the way of all of the most sincere arguments around if only Israel did X, and then you start seeing the Palestinian maximalists oppose the very same thing that the Israeli center actually would want to see happen. I mean, I have a lot of thoughts about Hamas, and I don't want to get too deep into that, but I'll say two things. One is we can't have our cake and eat it too. We can't both insist that we are treating Palestinians as some sort of separate nation, separate state, separate country. I'm not even sure the right terminology, right, that we need to negotiate with. And so they are a collective. But at the same time, we're not allowing them to have that separate state. So either we allow there to be a state where Hamas might take power, and then we'd have to deal with that. But as a separate state, the same way we have to deal with, you know, Syria being under a horrific power, or they are individuals, which is what we have right now, Tachlis, right? We can't deal with them as a collective. Like we can't say, well, all 4 million of you, we're going to have to relate to you in this way because I don't, how many people in Hamas are there actually? I'm not talking about people who are happy that Hamas is stepping up to their defense right now. I'm talking about actually hardcore Hamas. We deal with them the same way you deal with any criminal violent elements within society. That's answer number one. Answer number two is I think that we have a tendency, a very strong tendency to see reality as it is, as reality as it must be, right? We look at this growing support for Hamas and we say, oh, this is a growing existential threat to Israel. But there's a lot of polling and I don't have it at my fingertips. But one thing that I do remember learning from Professor Khalil Shikaki, who is brilliant and his polling is so helpful, is that the support for different political parties and fundamentally Hamas as a political party shifts based on what people see as possible. So when it seems like there's a two-state solution on the horizon, all of a sudden everybody supports a two-state solution. The support for a two-state solution goes way up. And I think we tend to think of it the opposite. If we create conditions, and I could name a bunch, starting with lifting the siege on Gaza in all sorts of different ways while maintaining security, and I think there are lots of ways to do that, but you start lifting that, you undermine Hamas's power. I think there are a lot of ways. We're not talking about a massive portion of the population that actually wants to kill Jews. I live in a city where more than a third of the city is Palestinians without citizenship. If they all wanted us dead, we would all be dead. But I think fundamentally, we tend to overestimate the existential threat that Hamas poses. And there are ways to limit that and to deal with it without imposing what we are imposing on 4 million human beings. Right. And without stripping away agency here. So, Yona, let me switch to you, which on the same question about simplicity and complexity, if I could just add one thing, it's not just what's simple and what's complex about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. It's also what should be simple and should be complex to those American Jews who are watching or internalizing the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. I want to just jump on to Leia. Is that okay? The other thing is this is what happens, and it just happened over the last two weeks. Hamas's rockets hijacked the entire world's attention, right? But 10 minutes away from Leia, there were nonviolent protests. There's a movement being led by young Palestinians. And this is my job, and I think about this probably more than is healthy, and I didn't know the names of many of these young people. And it was only through conversations with Mahmoud Muna from the educational bookshop where he took us through on a webinar of his social media feed that I got to hear the voices of this like incredible young Palestinian woman asking the Israeli Magavnikim, the police guys, as they're handcuffing her. It felt very Kingian, right? She was asking in a very nonviolent way, like, 
Is this what you wanted to be when you grow up? Is this really what you want to be doing? And we're not seeing that. Both the media is not reflecting it, but we're not looking for it. And when it's there, we're not interested. That really is part of the dynamic that's happening in the American Jewish community is then you have when there's a war, when there's rockets and the adrenaline is pumping, people start to tune back in. But it's going on in the background. And actually that same thing on the night of Ed el-Fitr, like Mahmoud was showing us these things of, again, the Israeli police stopping people from coming to go to Al-Aqsa on the highway. And so people got off the buses and walked for four hours. That's like such a incredible sight. It's nonviolent. And it also shows our, meaning our sides, I don't mean insensitivity in a sensitive way. It's like literally cultural insensitivity and how those miscalculations not only keep this conflict going, but actually lead to episodes of violence erupting. And I think because underneath them, you know, John Paul Lederach talks about like the epicenter of a conflict and episodes. And it goes back to the seeing, the inattentional blindness, right? Like we see the stimulus right in front of us, the episodes are sexy and they get our emotions jazzed up, but at the epicenter are so many other tectonic plates that we're not looking at. You know, a couple of years ago when we had a group of our Muslim Leadership Initiative participants in Israel at Hartman, there was one Friday afternoon when they left the Institute to go to Al-Aqsa to pray. And en route, as they were in the old city on their way to Al-Aqsa, the Israeli security services had stopped a potential suicide bomber at one of the checkpoints. And as a result, they radio in and they close Al-Aqsa for prayers, but they did so while there were hundreds of people basically on the verge of entering Al-Aqsa. So this group of Muslim Americans, who for the most part didn't speak Arabic, right? They are connected through a sense of peoplehood to the rest of the prayer pilgrims, are basically stuck now in a human mess between basically the press of people and the IDF soldiers. And a number of them get kicked by IDF soldiers and held back. And it basically was about to rupture and destroy any work that we were going to do around a conversation that enraged in you're witnessing exactly the costs of occupation, loss of freedom of movement, inability to access your holy places. Then they went to a different mosque because they wanted to pray. And they sit in the mosque and the imam starts just a cascade of anti-Semitic comments. Jews control the media, they control Hollywood, the banks, etc. And it was like, you watched this kind of crestfallen, the ability to be completely enraged about X starts to get mitigated by the story of Y. That, to me, is the story of what's simple and what's complicated. Meaning, the past is complicated, the future is complicated, the present sucks. And that's simple. <laughs> that's actually simple. And it should be simple enough to say, the experience of Palestinians under occupation sucks. Why isn't that simple to say? Well, because we can't even mean... agree on the terminology. It's controversial to use the word occupation. Not in this conversation. I'm saying in the discourse. Right. I just think there has to be a way to locate some of the language of simplicity in the actual lived experience of Israelis and Palestinians in conflict. Maybe I'm missing some population. I've never heard somebody say their experience doesn't suck. I think where the debate is, is whose fault it is. Right? Yeah, of course their experience sucks. Blame Hamas. Blame the PA. Blame Fatah. It's not our fault. And therefore, it's not our problem. That's what I hear. I don't hear anyone saying it's not simple that their life sucks. Right. I'm just saying, I think when we engage the question of the ethics of complexity, that we should be allowed to say descriptively the aspects of this that are untenable can be thought of within simplicity as a moral category. This is not hard. Like in general, you can't falsify somebody's experience of the world. You can't. So why would I? And that means if you're scared of something, if you're vulnerable, nothing that someone else tells you, oh, actually, the anti-Semitism statistics are inaccurate. Sorry, doesn't help me feel less vulnerable. So that's where I think the language of simplicity actually could be useful to us. Just get people to recognize the human toll. That itself is simple. Does that solve for how we got here or how we get there? That is allowed from a moral standpoint to be complicated. Yes, from a non-philosophical point of view, yes. And, you know, I'm thinking of my Palestinian colleagues and friends. Also, there's a danger of being reductionist, meaning like 
people say to us, oh, well, you're taking American Jews or Israeli Jews to humanize Palestinians, to make them feel sorry for them. And it's like, actually, no, that's not what we're trying to do. We're trying to really help them encounter. And part of it is encountering tremendous resilience. Their life sucks, but it doesn't only suck. There's theater, there's music, there's a flourishing of language, there's like a political renaissance, there's young people getting involved in activism, rethinking what it means to be Palestinian. So that too, wherever that fits into the moral complexity conversation, because I feel like we miss that. I don't want us to, by accident, sort of then be paternalistic and sort of like, well, they're victims, right? They're also, there's so much incredible resilience. And one of the things... I want to be careful on how I say it because I don't want to inadvertently objectify in a generalized way, but there's so much dignity in the people that I meet where under very challenging circumstances, it's like there's a commanding sense of, it doesn't feel victimized. I don't know how to explain that. Let's stay on that. And this is my last question for you. So this is a conversation between Jews about Palestinians. I'm aware of that. I'm aware of the optics of it. I think it's important anyway, because there is the conversation that has to take place between the Jewish people and the Palestinian people. And there is, and I think this is a lot of the work that you do, there's a conversation that has to take place in and among the Jewish people about the nature of the conversation between Jews and Palestinians. I'm aware of it and I'm sensitive to it. So let's secondhand bring the voices of Palestinians in the room. I'd love for you to each share something you've learned, an insight, you can quote it by name, a voice that you want American Jews in particular to be listening to. I'm very cynical when American Jews say things like, why don't the Palestinians have a Martin Luther King or a Gandhi? And I'm like, you don't know any Palestinians. There's no version of those people who exist who you might even know. So here's a limited window. Tell us something you've learned from one of the people who you've talked to, from one of your partners, one of the voices that you would want to bring into this conversation. For me, it's Israelis that are coming to mind. Also, because this is like a passion of both Leia and mine of like what it means to now try to translate encounters model with Israelis. On one of the last programs where we brought Israelis in the inner group processing conversation, making sense of what did we see, one of the Israeli participants talked about how they know things, they read the news, they consider themselves involved but for the most part, like Palestinians on a day-to-day -day basis, they're not in their consciousness. And what they were flabbergasted was how Israelis and the occupation are part of every single minute of Palestinians' days. And that striking awakening of like, what does that mean for us? That's what came to mind when you asked your question. I will just say they got that from one of our speakers, an extraordinary woman who said, you don't understand. The only reason I agreed to meet with you today is because you were willing to come to Ramallah and to see what my life is actually like. But you're going to walk away. You're going to leave and you're going to forget about me. But I can't ever forget your presence because your presence is in my life all the time. Your collective Israeli presence. I think they actually got that from her. There are so many. But I think that... You know, this isn't something that he says, but one of our speakers who is a resident of East Jerusalem, who actually tried to apply for citizenship because fundamentally, I think he would like a one state solution, but not in the sense of destroying Israel. He actually said, I heard him say for the first time explicitly last week, that his hope is that Palestinians will eventually get citizenship in Israel, the same way that Palestinian citizens of Israel have citizenship. But when he talks about equality, and it's this person who's one of the most brilliant people I have ever met, he's much smarter than I am, and he's talking about the fact that this is the city he has lived in since he was born in this city, goes back at least seven generations in this city. And I don't know if I really want to end on this, but this is where my mind is going. He says, there is no such thing as J-positive blood. It's really harsh. It's really grating. But he's like, I just don't understand how Jews who have gone through so much in their history and have been treated so badly in so many ways can look at a group of people and think that their blood is redder. Like, I just want to be treated as an equal. That's all I want. I want to be treated as your equal because I know that I am your equal. 
And I don't know how to look away from that. I don't know how to say, well, we just got to be patient. Like, I think that's where our luxury is. We as Jews, whether Israeli or American, we're not actually suffering from the situation here. I mean, we do from time to time. And I've certainly felt that, you know, lost friends and family members as part of the conflict, but it is episodic. It is not part of everyday life. We're not the ones suffering. And so we can look away, but I don't know how we can let ourselves just to get back to the beginning of our conversation. I don't know how we can let ourselves look away from that. And I don't know how we can let ourselves say, all right, eventually it's complicated and we'll get there one day and they just have to be patient. Like I can't ask that of another person to be patient. For me, um, I'm reminded of a conversation that we did with a bunch of rabbis a number of years ago at Hartman with my colleague Mohammed Darausha, who's affiliated with Hartman, connected to Givat Chaviva, Palestinian citizen of Israel, so not in the West Bank, major activist in this space. And one of the things he said to this group of American rabbis who was visiting was, it's okay that you show up here and you feel at home. It's okay. You're allowed to. You should be allowed to feel that you're at home, even though you don't actually live here. But your sense of at-homeness cannot come at the cost of my sense of at-homeness because my family's been here for 14 generations. And you don't even see it. You don't notice the ways in which there is a people who is at home here. And I was so moved by that because that's the depth of genuinely a non-political statement. Of course it's political, but it's a genuinely non-political statement of reminding the Jewish people of any people in the world have been enchanted by the possibility of at-homeness. And so the notion that it has to be a zero-sum notion of at-homeness feels so compromising. I do want to wrap up, but there was one thing I wanted to talk about that we didn't get to. There's one other thing that I've just noticed with respect to both of you as leaders, which is the ways in which you are putting yourselves into a public conversation, not just through the programs, escorting people, shepherding people, coaching people, processing, learning, and teaching. All of that is powerful work, but all of us as leaders are also challenged to be out in front in very public ways. Leah, you've been writing very deep Facebook posts for a long time, and especially over the last few weeks, you're also a prolific writer in the blogosphere, Times of Israel, other places. Yona, you got into a little bit of hot water in this past week with a Facebook post in which it seemed like you were subtweeting the emergence of a number of solidarity missions and asking, how do we make sure that the agenda of these solidarity missions by Jewish communities actually incorporate the voices of Palestinians? And I know that the response that you got, which is vociferous, is it's just hard. It's hard to be out there in public, and I'm sure Leo felt the same. I wonder if you could each reflect on your own sense of your own public voice, when do you feel the need to not just do the educational work, we know that that's the powerful work, but to also be a public voice? And since we talked about resilience, how do you manage the inevitable blowback? Because anyone who's in this space, who's constantly talking about Palestinians, is going to be treated with a kind of hostility by precisely those segments of the population who are trying to get people not to see and not to listen. Yeah. It's not easy. (laughs) I think that I've made a very conscious decision to be very public and to be very personal, to speak from a very personal place. I kind of feel like I don't really have a choice. I mean, you can hear in everything that I'm saying. I just feel this very deep obligation, especially as someone who has the ability to not live here. My entire family has American passports. We could move back to the U.S. Not like living in the U.S. makes you not complicit either. But, you know, I'm making a choice to live here. And I don't feel like I have a choice. I feel like I have an obligation to speak up about how I feel, both in terms of my commitment to the Jewish people and to Israel and my commitment to the people who share this land with me. But I think fundamentally, and I don't mean to like, you talk a lot about courageous leadership, And we also talk a lot about courageous leadership. Like, I think that's somewhere where our two organizations are very much aligned. And I am very frustrated by the lack of courage that I see. I hear so often, and I get it. This is definitely something that is hard. But I hear so many people saying, I can't speak up because of, and fill in the blank, my donors, my students, the parents, the funding, lose my job. There's a million risks. And it's true. It's true. There's a million risks. But I am frustrated that people don't say, you know what, I'm going to speak up anyway. And I just feel like if I want to expect that from them, I have to expect it from myself. Honestly, I'm worried like, you know, one day when I might be looking for another job some point. I know people who have like gone back and said, well, we saw you posted this somewhere and not gotten jobs because of that. And maybe that's a risk that I'm taking. It just feels like I don't know about worth it. It just feels like that is what I have to do. I've not been as public. I think like over the last two weeks, I've started 
I use my public voice in person. I use my public voice when speaking in front of groups. I'm more comfortable that way for all kinds of different reasons, you know, disposition, but also you're with the actual people in the room. There's no way for people to then misconstrue and take it elsewhere in the same way that one's writing does. But with the stuff happening in Sheikh Jarrah and sort of where things have been, both some of what Leia said, if we're going to ask this of other people, we need to model it. Also, some of the adaptive leadership stuff, like it's time to get out of the stands and get on the court. But also where it feels like the risk of not speaking is greater than speaking. Meaning I felt like I am seeing by nature of my position, I really do have access to perspectives that other people don't have access to. I have access to voices and I'm literally in the Facebook feed, but through relationships, seeing things that people aren't seeing. And the idea of not using my platform to actually give voice to that at a certain point feels wrong. And so I've been experimenting with trying to put it out there. I try very hard differently than Leia. You know, I try to do it in my own voice, which is who I am. And I am a bit spicy at times and that will get me into trouble. But it also is useful sometimes, even with the Facebook post that got me into trouble. And I upset good friends of mine who I really deeply admire. And I've had to make some repairs around that. It brought me back to thinking upon reflecting that book, Radical Candor by Kim Scott. It's a management book, but she talks about this quadrant of challenging directly and caring personally. And it's possible maybe in the post that I put up this week, I challenged a little too directly. I sort of assumed everybody knows I care personally. And that was a big mistake. And also it's having colleagues who are willing to call you in and talk with you about it. You were very generous and sort of checking in with me about you're used to the bluster around this and sort of giving me some perspective and feedback on that. And I'm grateful to you for that because, you know, finding my way in it. But I also feel a responsibility from a place of love, not from a place of shrill, I have puritanical righteousness of challenging directly. I don't want to cancel that out either for myself or honestly, like when I think about in my moments where I'm going to sleep, like whose eyes am I thinking about that I'm accountable to? I'm thinking about my kids, my family in Israel and our Palestinian colleagues and friends. Well, thank you very much for listening to our show this week and special thanks to our guests, Leah Solomon and Yona Shemtov. Identity Crisis is a product of the Shalom Hartman Institute. It was produced this week by David Svee Kalman and edited by Alex Dillon with assistance from Miri Miller and music provided by SoCalled. To learn more about the Shalom Hartman Institute, you can visit us online at shalomhartman.org. We'd love to know what you think about the show. You can rate and review us on iTunes to help more people find the show, and you can write to us at identitycrisis at shalomhartman.org. You can subscribe to our show in the Apple Podcast app, Spotify, SoundCloud, Audible, and everywhere else podcasts are available. We'll see you next week. Stay safe, stay healthy, and thanks for listening.